Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. In the 19th century, Robert Baron Jay Goode famously said he could hire one half of the working class to kill the other half of the working class. We currently live in the society Jay Good wanted to exist. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the problems of police unions. Members of the working class uh, exist to uh, press the other half of the working class. Today joining me on the, uh, the air for Punching Out uh, is going to be Chris uh, from Enough is Enough. Hi, I'm Chris. <laughs> and Jay. And it's just Jay. It's just Jay. <laughs> and I'm rich, by the way. So because Punching Out is based in Rochester, I thought today we'd, uh, we'd start at least talking about the Rochester Police Department uh, and its own, its own union, the Locust Club. So I don't know if you guys knew this, but the Locust Club is actually a pun. It started off as a social club, but the Locust Club itself was actually the material their batons were made of. So the Locust Club was their weapon of choice, their tool of choice, and that's their... Uh, their public performance of themselves. It's not a uh, plague to uh, all of Rochester. It's just their, uh, <laughs> their weapon. So uh, I thought we'd start with you guys, maybe talk about your uh, experiences uh, with the Locust Club and uh, how they have served as an impediment to uh, progress in the city. So Chris, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I'm um, with the anti-police brutality group Enough is Enough, and um, we have worked with many people affected by police brutality. And, you know, our experience with the Locust Club is having to deal with uh, Mike Mazio, the president of the Locust Club, coming out and basically trying to discredit anyone who has a problem with, you know, the police union and uh, police officers in Rochester. Um, so, you know, we've heard many times, um, Mike Mazio go on the, you know, local news to, uh, discredit people who have legitimate claims against police officers for brutality and working also, um, for reforms in Rochester, police reforms, the union has a lot of power and, you know, coming up against the union when advocating for reforms, um, tends to happen, particularly with the Police Accountability Board. We were kind of surprised we didn't hear much from the union, um, but only recently when it seems like the Police Accountability Board is going to be passed by city council um, have we been hearing more from the Locust Club. Why do you think you haven't heard uh, that much from the union? I don't know. Um, it, it was actually a, very surprising to us because, you know, unions do have a lot of power over policy, um, you know, especially in New York State where... You see New York City police unions wielding a lot of power over policy um, and just being a huge presence and blocking a lot of stuff when it comes to putting pressure on police. So we were really surprised that we didn't see much from the Locust Club. I, it could be that they are just disorganized and they weren't expecting this to actually go through. Or it could be that they're just relying on, you know, down the road, lawyering up, which tends to be one kind of tool that police unions use. Um, you can see this in New York City, especially where they'll get into litigation to really kind of flex their muscles to block reforms or block. One big thing in New York City happening right now is blocking um, public disclosure of discipline records. And, you know, that really takes place in the courtrooms um, where the police union fights it. If you, What's interesting to me about uh, the Locust Club and about police unions in general uh, is that they do very much present themselves as part of the labor movement. So if you go on the Locust Club website right now, a couple of the news articles they post prominently on their front page are, among others, a criticism of Janus versus AFSME, AFSME excuse me, uh, the Supreme Court decision that uh, gutted public sector unions from a you know pretty stout labor perspective, but then also prominent on the uh, the front page of their own website is, of course, a deep criticism of the Police Accountability Board. Um, as, as you can expect, they see uh, the Police Accountability Board as interfering with their work as police officers. So there's this tension built into police unions as 
you know, workers themselves, but also workers who use the cover of the labor movement to prevent the public from regulating them or learning about them. Yeah, that's definitely a concern. Like, you know, you don't want to come out against the union too hard to be seen as like anti-union. But I mean, I think it's pretty clear that most of the criticism comes from people on the left. So I don't think many people are confusing that with right-wing attacks on police unions. Um, um, but yeah, that does seem like police unions use that as a defense that you are attacking unions yeah. and you're union busting. But um, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to see through that. But um, they definitely do try to um, to say they're part of the labor movement and that you are attacking the labor movement by attacking police unions. And they'll, they'll use structures like contracts and collective bargaining and arbitration, like you mentioned, to run interference on these reforms. But the issue is they're using things created essentially to for workers to have a say with their bosses. But in this case, their boss in theory is the public. You know, they're trying to interfere with the public's responsibility uh, and right to know what they're doing, uh, but using union rhetoric and union institutions as their cover. Yeah, and that's something that um, has been an issue with the Police Accountability Board. Um, one angle that the Locust Club is attacking it is from uh, labor law, the Taylor Law in particular, um, which I won't go too much in the weeds, but it basically dictates you know, um, how collective bargaining agreements have, they supersede other policy. Um, but in this case, um, there are, there's case law to support that you know, a public can make their own policy um, in regards to police and how they should be disciplined. Mm -hmm. um, and that should supersede a collective bargaining agreement, which you know, tend to be very problematic with police in particular. Um, a lot of stipulation in those agreements about not, you know, disclosing misconduct, also um, having very, very onerous protections for police officers to basically be fed information before um, hearings so that they could kind of cover up their tracks. There, there was a good report on police union contracts that I might be able to um, think of the name. I can't think of it. I think it's Project Zero, and they went over um, union contracts and some of the pieces that are put in there, such as disqualifying complaints, restricting or delaying interrogations, giving officers unfair access to information, limiting oversight and discipline in general, requiring cities to pay for misconduct, and erasing misconduct records. And Rochester has five of those six problematic stipulations um, in their police union contract. You know, we came up with this, uh, came up against this when we learned that um, after five years, um, complaints are basically expunged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a problem because we were trying to collect data on um, police misconduct in Rochester to kind of make the case for the Police Accountability Board. And then we came up against that because they just erased the records after five years. And we've, you know, they, I think they erase records of unfounded um, complaints, but the problem is, you know, they find all complaints unfounded. Who, who determines what's unfounded. Exactly. exactly. So you're just losing, you know, all this data, which is basically just the police covering their tracks. Right. So Jay, uh, you've had your own uh, experiences with the uh, the Locust Club. Would you care to tell us about your, your run-ins with them? Yeah, and I kind of just want to affirm what Chris was saying about how the police union definitely hinders any type of progress on the ground when it comes to like trying to fight against police brutality or just policing as an institution, period. The police union is almost there specifically to protect the police and kind of create this little, this little hub for them to like be and no one can touch them because who's going to police the police? Like My experience with Mazio and the Locust Club came about a couple of years ago when they brought um, Bill Lewinsky, who is a fake doctor who runs this, this, this school called the Forest Science Institute. And he goes around the country teaching police officers um, like strategies and tactics based on fake science that he literally made up. Um, there's articles all over like their New York Times everywhere like has called this man out and for some strange reason Mike Mazio thought it'd be a beautiful great progressive idea to spend $90,000 to bring this man 
uh, union funds, mind you, that because they got funds from city council. Actually, um, city council allotted them ten thousand um, dollars. I think this was September twenty seventeen, a couple years back. Yeah, gave them ten thousand dollars and ended up reneging because the public, well, actually enough is enough. Um, basically, shut it down. It was like that's not cool and kind of like let off a public outcry. outcry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Public outcry. So that got shut down. So they were like, well, forget it. Um, We're going to do it anyway and ended up using their own funds to bring him here. Anyways, the Forest Science Institute came here and basically taught them... Sorry, could you just like... What what is Forest Science as this this quack defines it? it? What, What does it involve? It involves basically using... A pseudo, like it's something he made up. I can't really explain it. It's based on like his own research that's not peer reviewed or anything like that. But this specific training was about using reaction times, like from the point where a thing happens and a police officer is like feeling threatened or anything like that. He was teaching them how to respond quicker. Okay. So. That was just one thing. And there's, like, the exhalation tactics. Like, there's a whole curriculum that they have. If you go to the forestscienceinstitute.org, like, I think it's .org. And, and all assets of the, the curriculum cost, like, $90,000 each, I'm sure, right? Um, It was, like, $1,500 a head or, like, 1000 They had 60 officers, and, like, for every seat, it costs, like, a bunch of money for right. them to sit in it. But once we did the math, it came up to $90,000, 10 of which was originally allotted by city council. But anyways, um, after the public outcry, uh, all that, we decided a few friends of mine, ad hoc group, like no no solidified anything, decided that we were going to fight against it and we didn't want this training to happen. And throughout this, it was a two-week time span, Mazio in himself is like, he believed in this fake science. Like he believed in this pseudoscience that were, was being like preached and taught so much that he defended it like to our faces through email on the news. Like he defended it. And I feel like it's scary because like these are the people that like we're trying to like collaborate with, you know, like try and like figure out like how can we make this work in terms of like when we're talking about like police reforms and stuff like that, figuring out how like how can we like I said collaborate with these guys and they're like idiots and I hate to say it so bluntly like that, but Mazio, we emailed him basically like listen here dude like this can't happen like you know like you can't bring this dude here it's it's dangerous for the people of Rochester like I live in Rochester like it's dangerous for us to be out in the streets knowing that you're teaching how you're teaching cops and basically like strengthening their already implicit bias like you know like it's not safe it's not cool so we're like we gonna send this dude an email and he sent one back and he basically was like he like picked apart our email here. You, Bill Lewinsky, like he gets called to do like he to testify for police officers after they like shoot people and like kill them. Um, so he is brought in as like an expert witness. Okay. And this, ha- and although he has been discredited and like it's been proven that he doesn't even have a PhD, like these departments are still using him and calling him in for these things, but. What Mike Mazio says, he's basically like rebuttaling the fact and defending like what has already been proven to be fake. And it's like I feel that like he's the president, so like these are these he's like who you, these people are like looking up to. Like they're looking to him for like his he holds weight, his his position, his word, his all that it holds weight. The force science action itself like ended up being a bust. They still had the training. It still happened. And I feel like if more people just knew what happened and like how the police union played a big role in like the increase of police shootings that happened almost directly after the training happened. There was like a shooting in January of 2018. February, there were two people shot in Greece by the police that you didn't really hear much about those though like but it still happened and like they were like shutting down neighborhoods and stuff on the east side almost directly after this training like police violence in Rochester just went up and I feel like if we just understood the role that the police union plays on like when it comes to what was happening on the ground we should understand why we they are they aren't our friends it's an interesting uh kind of perversion too of just how unions work because often unions particularly trade unions will provide training for their members 
Um, it's in their contracts. It's in their contracts, sure. And I'm sure they got probably bonuses or something, some sort of professional perk for attending the force science thing. Uh, but like you said, it's, it's pseudoscience. It's complete quackery, the, the, this force science nonsense. But they consider it part of their part of their professional development, part of their craft to yeah. be able to apply force to the people they're policing. They feel it's justified. And all those has been discredited by several different everyone's. Right. <laughs> it's still being defended and, and made to seem as if it's real. Like, it's it's a legitimate delusion. Right. It's really strange and scary. Yeah, and it's interesting because it is, you know, it is a training, but it is almost a training just to justify shootings. It's not, right. you know, how to use force better. It's just almost a way to prep people to account for using force. And, you know, one example that's used for, like, explaining what force science is, like, if you're a police officer and you confront someone that has their back turned to you, like, that person, like, in 0.5 seconds can pull a gun and shoot you. So you are, even though this person is, you know, just, you know, has their back to you, they're still a threat or they could be a threat. And that's, like, the gist of force science, um, just kind of making all these uh, like kind of uh, theoretical situations and when someone could um, threaten a police officer and interpreting innocuous situations into, you know, a potential threat. So that's what force science is. It's, it's, it's really like, and that's what um, this doctor or pseudo doctor or whatever, <laughs> fake doctor, um, you know, he's a expert witness um, in testimony. So it, it's really about justifying shootings and justifying uses of force more than like actually training officers how to, Avoid using force, or... which which strikes me as part of the job of being a police officer. Yeah, it's, he's kind of like their get out of jail free card. Like Chris was saying, is he's justifying what's already happening, mm -hmm. and like and like affirming it as if these things are real and okay, and like like I said, are just strengthening that implicit bias that they already have, that unjustified fear that they already have. Mm -hmm. And Rochester RPD, they're dealing with the majority black and brown demographic here so it's like they already just in the majority of the department is white so it's like they already harbor that feeling of being threatened by what they assume to be like not people not like them like non-human people that on top of them being cops on top of them getting this training it's like it's like doubling down like no re like they're it's almost like there's no room for any reconciliation there. Like everything is just getting worse. That <laughs> lack of connection between the police, their union, and our community is a provides a nice segue to our second segment, and we will be right back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, I'm Rich, and welcome back to Punching Out. Uh, today we're joined uh, once again by Chris from Enough is Enough and by Jay. Uh, the Locust Club, you may not know, was founded in the early 20th century as a social club for police officers. If you read the, web, uh, the history they post on their website... Uh, they talk about how in July 1964, Rochester went through, quote, a race riot. They conveniently leave out the fact that the uprising of 1964's inciting event was an incident of police brutality. Here's the interesting thing to my mind about that happenstance. The next month is when the city of Rochester, August 1964, agreed to recognize the Locust Club as the police department's bargaining unit. So their existence as a union is very much tied to not just an event of police brutality, but also the consequences of police brutality and the need perceived by the city to keep a restive, multiracial working class uh, quiescent and disciplined. So let's talk about the, uh, the composition of the RPD. Who are, how many are there? How many officers are there? How many members of the Locust Club are there? What is their uh, social background? And where do they live? Uh, Jay, you want to start us off in this? I don't know how many officers are in the union, but I do know, actually we were talking about this a little earlier, about 800 officers, and I don't know how many of them don't live in the city, but it's a majority of I think 93% of officers don't live in the city, yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> but yeah, and it's just, and 
a majority of the force is white and also not city uh, Rochester citizens. And it also reflects on other institutions too, like our um, education system. Majority of the teachers are white and don't live in in the city. And I just feel like that is just a common thing, especially in majority black cities um, where there's an occupying force. Like the RPD is an occupying force. They're coming in from the outskirts or even further and taking over. I'll open the floor to discuss with all about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a problem in Rochester. um, And there was a lot um, of conversation around um, the um, where police officers live after Ferguson because in um, Ferguson they had the same problem. Police officers tended not to live in the city and lived in the suburbs. Um, but you know, even cities that do have more uh, representation of officers in the city who live in the city, um, being police officers, you still see some of the problems. So I, I tried to somewhat avoid that like it is a good talking point like yeah the police officers don't live in the city so when like police officers complain that you know the police accountability board is a waste of taxpayers funds it's like well you're not paying those taxes anyway <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but it, it's 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 questionable about, about you know whether or not that will actually make a better police force if they do live in the city i mean i think um you have to think about these as institutions um that have institutional problems and it's not um, going to be fixed with a, a, a you know a simple solution like um, having more police officers in the city, um, but it definitely is a problem. It does speak to like the police force that only you know seven percent of officers actually live in the city. That seems wildly. And I'm almost willing to bet my last dollar that those cops who do live in the city are a part of that very small percentage of cops who aren't white. Like Rochester is a majority black and brown city. I want to say maybe like 55, 56, or even a little more like 58% of people who live here are not white. And even though Rochester is also one of the most segregated places in the country, I I agree with Chris, though. Like I feel like having more police officers that live in Rochester means there's just going to be a lot more police officers that look like me. And I don't want more police officers that look like me. I'm not advocating for more cops that are homegrown in Rochester soil. I'm not advocating for more black cops. I'm advocating for, like, less cops and, like, advocating Mm, for no cops at all. Um, And I feel that it's almost inevitable. So, like, if if there are more cops who live in Rochester, there's going to be more black cops, like, because that's who's here. Um, the department um, provides incentives like home ownerships and stuff like that and money and grants and stuff for cops to come and move in the city. And it's just like, no, we really don't want you here. We want you to leave and go. Poli- if you're going to if you want to be a police officer that bad, go police in your own hoods, like not not ours. My, my main point in bringing <laughs> up uh, the, the composition of the union was just to highlight uh, despite the fact that 93% of them, as you said, don't live in the city, uh, and they certainly don't represent the demographics of the city, they certainly have an outsized representation in, in city politics. Uh, so, Chris, I was wondering if you could talk about, uh, well, first of all, the size of the, the RPD compared to c- comparable cities, uh, and then also what impact uh, the size of this fairly large union and fairly influential union has on um, on Rochester politics writ large. Yeah. Um, so Rochester does have um, more police officers than uh, most mid-sized cities. So yeah, it's around 800 um, police officers. It you know the numbers like change seasonally, um, so it's hard to get like an exact number. But almost the same amount of officers as Buffalo. But you know Buffalo has 50,000 more people than Rochester. So um, per capita, Rochester has um, a significantly higher number of police officers than most other uh, mid-sized cities. So I think the numbers are 3.5 per thousand capita in Rochester, 2.9 in Buffalo, and 2.7 in Syracuse. And nationally, it's um, something like 2.4. So we do have a large police force. Um, We spend more money than Buffalo, again, a a city that's bigger than Rochester. Um, And it's a given in almost every city that police budgets are different than other departments. Um, Police budgets consistently go up um, year after year. Only during the um, 2007 recession did RPD's budget go down. Every other year, you you see an increase in police spending. 
And that that's not that doesn't happen with all city departments. And um, I think it's because people can there's um, a sense of legitimacy to the police, and that the police spending, just as like military spending in, in you know the United States, is always um, like kind of sacred and always um, is always like a safe bet. And uh, you kind of see that with po- um, police budgets. And you know the police union does have a lot of power. So. You know, if there's going to be a every um, election cycle, whether it's city council or the mayor, um, there's always going to be a, um, a like, kind of like a candidates forum at the Locust Club, and the Locust Club does give out endorsements and um, political contributions. You know, the Locust Club, you know, like most police unions, stuff that they defend always, isn't always popular, um, but you do see a lot of institutional power with police. Um, departments like again like mayors and just uh, you know cities um, kind of have a close relationship with police departments like most mayors um, nominate a police chief or a police commissioner so there's a close relationship usually between a mayor and the police Um, so even if you do have some success kind of fighting against the the power of these police unions it usually tends towards the police unions getting their way. So New York City is a good example. Um, with Mayor Bill de Blasio, you um, had a mayor who initially came into New York City and said, you know, I'm going to stop stop and frisk. Um, so they ended stop and frisk policy, and that was seen as a loss for the police union who fought for stop and frisk to continue. But then, you know, two years later, um, Mayor de Bill de Blasio um, hires a thousand more police officers for the NYPD. And that was seen as kind of like, you know, almost like a transactional um, play in New York City politics. Like, you can only go against the police so much. And um, kind of the tides will always kind of come back. Like with the Police Accountability Board, um, it's a popular reform. Most people support the police accountability board, just because it's common sense. Like police officers should not be policing themselves. Like that's just common sense. You can explain that and people will be on your side. So it's a very popular piece of reform. And that may be why the police union hasn't had success kind of squashing it. But, um, you know, again, like the police union still has a lot of power in the city. So um, another proposal, which hasn't had nearly um, enough opposition to it, um, barely any opposition opposition to it is the construction of new police stations. So um, this is again something that's been called for by uh, the police union in Rochester. So right now we have four police stations in Rochester, and there's a proposal to build three um, new police stations. That's kind of, I guess you can see, like you know, their institutional power. Um, generally, they get their way. Where, um, where would the the new police stations be? So um, in 2014, Rochester. Uh, switched to a five-section model, changing from the old west-east model. Um, so now there are five police sections dividing the city. Um, so the three new police stations would be in the Lake section, which is Lake Ave. It's going to be on Lake Avenue. Um, there's going to be one in the uh, like the 19th Ward. Um, well, the, the um, southwest um, in the uh, Bullshead development, and a third one on East Main Street um, um, in the Goodman section. So, you know, this is a very expensive project, $10 million minimum per police station. And you can kind of see again, like, yes, police spending is never really questioned. It's always seen as a good investment. I guess that's kind of where the power in policing comes. It's, It's seen as the only legitimate option for public safety. And when you kind of give it that legitimacy as the only way in which we kind of deal with public safety's concerns about public safety, um, you, you really have no other option. And that's why we invest so much in police departments. Like when you see cuts in welfare and um, other social programs, you know, you don't see those same cuts in policing or at least not at the same level because, you know, you can almost interpret it as like we're going to use policing to to deal with the social problems that come from poverty and come from a lack of resources. So um, police spending and police power is is really um, not easily pressured. One thing I've noticed, and you can almost say it's a law, I'll just go ahead and humbly call it Rich's Law, you can, start, you can tell 
where power lies in society, by which unions the power elites refuse to bust. You never see cities or states uh, bring in expensive outside union busting firms to deal with uh, police unions. Um, you know, you do see uh, attempts to limit public unions to be sure. Uh, so, for instance, police can't go on strike. Uh, that's one of the uh, the limits uh, imposed on police unions. But otherwise, you know, they seem to have uh, free reign to collectively bargain and protect their own turfs in a way that other unions in this country aren't afforded. So I want to also talk about, you know, just building off of that, uh, one of the stronger unions in the state of the New York, which is uh, NYSCOBA, uh, the New York State Corrections Officer, either Police, police Benefit uh, Association. Uh, that's one thing that the, the police unions do well is prosaic union acronyms. Uh, they, they, they certainly nail that. <clears throat> so... NYSCOBA represents primarily the corrections officers in the state of New York, so the the prison guards. They're the prison guard union in the state of New York. Um, And one consequence of having this large 20,000-member prison guard union is to distort the policy and the actual physical space of the the state. Uh, I was at a talk a couple weeks ago, and uh, one of the experts on the stage mentioned there are 30 prisons within driving distance of Rochester. Um, and there's part of the reason, a big part of the reason for that is this prison guard union lobbies extensively in the legislature to not just build more prisons, but also to ensure that more crimes have prison sentences attached to them. And they interfere as well with any attempts at uh, criminal law reform. So during the past election cycle, for instance, NYSCOBA ran an attack ad against Andrew Cuomo uh, who's not otherwise a favorite of this show, uh, because he tried to, or he was trying, still is trying to, um, to reform parole, to release uh, prisoners after they reach a certain age. And the attack was basically, he's trying to make our streets less safe. It was fear and anxiety about this so-called criminal class in the in the state. And so it's nothing about job benefits or job security or wages at that point. It's purely about creating and intensifying this professional class of uh, of law enforcement officers uh, by putting in cages, by and large, people of the working class in this state. So I was wondering if you guys had a, could comment on uh, some of the larger issues of not just police in Rochester, but also prisons and uh, the prison industrial complex in the in the state. I feel like when it comes to just what you were just saying about how we have this union running like a smear campaign against the governor because he was trying to reform parole. Not, I feel that it kind of just proves that these people aren't workers. They aren't a part of the working class. They don't move in the interest of the working class. And at the end of the day, like all of this stuff, I don't. I almost curse. I'm sorry, but all of this stuff is rooted in not just classism, but like anti-blackness. Like that that talk of criminal, our our, our streets are gonna be unsafe. When people think of criminals, parolees, felons, like they thinking of black folk, and it's just like the prison industrial complex specifically like commodifies our bodies and the bodies of black people and it's like to advocate for that and to like create this hysteria around it it's just like it kind of just goes back to the root of it all it's like black bodies will forever be commodified i guess and it's just frustrating because it's like no one's doing anything to you why spend your hard-earned money on that you paying union dues, that's what you want to spend it on? When was this? What year was this? This was in the last election, the, the so 2018 the, campaign. So this was current. The, yeah, it's recent. And, and it's like, I'm frustrated because it's just like, like I said, these people aren't working class people. They're, like, they don't move in the interest of the working class. And I feel like when it comes to the police and like these law enforcement officers, like, we should probably, like, how can we, like, alienate them, like, hardcore, like, out of the labor movement? Just be like, no, like, we're barring this. We're not okay with this. And, like, why aren't other labor unions speaking out about it? Because at the end of the day, like I said, it's, it's, 
it's not well classism and anti-blackness are intertwined not intersectional but like intertwined it's a thing but it's like why aren't like i said why aren't other labor unions like alienating these people like explicitly alienating alienating them and ostracizing them and shutting that down that's whack i'm sorry that was frustrating to hear people once once again jay provides us with the excellent segue into our uh, final segment (laughs) Uh, so this is Punching Out Radio on WAYO 104.3 FM, and we'll be right back. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LP FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Rich. I'm joined here today by Chris of Enough is Enough and uh, Jay. And we're talking about the problem of police unions. So one thing I I noticed that struck me is that unlike a lot of other unions, uh, police unions tend not to affiliate with larger internationals or even larger uh, unions. So Locust Club is, for instance, an, uh, an independent union. Uh, the largest police union in the country, the Fraternal Order of Police, incidentally, they endorsed Trump for president, surprise, surprise, uh, is not affiliated with uh, any of the major international federations, you know, like the AFL-CIO. Um, there is one uh, police union that is affiliated with the AFL-CIO, uh, but there's also been internally attempts by some locals, a UOW local, uh, notably, uh, tried to get a resolution passed to disaffiliate uh, the AFL-CIO with any other police unions. Um, so one thing I think we're, we, we'd all like to talk about in this last segment is why we don't consider uh, police unions legitimate parts of the labor movement uh, and why we don't consider police uh, part of the working class. So on the surface, it is kind of a working class job. Uh, the RPD's starting salary is $50,000. Uh, they can get you know pretty well off on uh, on overtime and on seniority and things like that, thanks to their you know pretty well negotiated contracts, uh, the benefits are outstanding. So it's one of the key reasons why anyone would become a police officer. Uh, after 25 years, I believe it is your pension vests. You might as well get a unicorn for any you know in any other union. You know, still hear that there's pensions in the world as part of a, a union contract. So you know that's a great thing for them. Um, but the fact that they stand against uh, the rest of the workers, that their whole purpose as an organization, as an institution, is to create a quiescent and docile laboring, labor working class is uh, the reason we're so critical of them. Um, so, I mean, Chris, do you know, are you familiar with any instances of organizers and left uh, political spaces trying to excise uh, police from their spaces and yeah uh, so um this came up actually at um the democratic socialists of america's um national convention i believe in 2018 or 2017 and it came up because someone was elected to the national political committee and it was revealed later after the election that they were a um, union organizer for a Texas police union um, called uh, the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas. And um, after it was revealed, there was a lot of outcry from uh, DSA members because it it didn't work with people's analysis at the time um, in DSA. Like, at, during that convention, they also um, adopted a platform of prison and police abolition. Um, so it, it seems um, just incongruous that they would also elect someone to the National Political Committee who was um, a police organizer. So um, there was it was a huge controversy, and it um, you know kind of the majority of people from the DSA. Um, called for um, this person's resignation, and you know, most of I think like the um, dissent of actually calling for his resignation had more to do with procedure than it actually had to do with the politics. Like, I think the politics of DSA really kind of came out in this um, argument, and I think you know you have to give a lot of credit to movements um, like Black Lives Matter 
to really shift the um, kind of paradigm and shift people's consciousness on this issue of not seeing um, police as a part of the labor movement because as an institution it is, you know, in many cases keeping down working class people and low income people. So I think that um, instance where, you know, eventually the person did resign. So there was enough pressure um, where the uh, former uh, police organizer did resign from the political committee. And I think it, it's a testament to just the, the changes in time where, you know, even though you are um, a well-known you know, labor organizer, um, you know, not all labor organizing is equal. And in th- this is like kind of just drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, police are not part of the labor movement. That's not the same thing. Like if you're, you know, while you're fighting for the labor movement in a sense because you're supporting like a working class you know, some, what can be perceived as a working class job, like um, a police officer, you know, you're also working against racial justice and anti-racist work. And so they're just, they don't compute. And I think that shift um, that we saw in the DSA is just, you know, a shift in just people's general political consciousness and seeing policing as an institution um, that is, you know, just not working and is something that is, in itself, you know, corrupted um, in that it's not doing the job that we think it is. And it is creating inequality. It is um, supporting white supremacy in America. So I think that shift in the DSA is um, a larger political shift um, in the political consciousness um, of leftists. So I think that's one example of how you, you, you can kind of see like how policing is just not part of uh, the labor movement and um, leftist movements. This is where I think history is instructive for us as well. You know, I, I started off the uh, the podcast, you know, quoting Jay Good, who was this robber baron of the 19th century. The origins of organized professional police forces, first of all, are in slave patrols. These are the first municipal police departments in the United States. Was the Charleston uh, Slave Patrol, but then also later in the 19th century, in, in what were called industrial police, and these were private, sometimes state-financed uh, organizations whose sole purpose was to maintain labor peace, which meant effectively to break strikes and to ensure that scabs could uh, get through strike picket lines and you know work the factories in places like Pennsylvania or in, in coal mines in West Virginia and places like that. So even in their origins, we see you know, here's a segment of the working class being paid oftentimes the same, but you know, maybe a little more to sweeten uh, working class wages to prevent working class solidarity. Their purpose as an institution is to prevent solidarity from forming. And you know, there's no evidence I've seen that that's changed at all uh, to this day uh, that would indicate that they merit you know the the cover of uh, of our of our solidarity. Jay, have you uh, you had any instances where you've been trying to open up left spaces from uh, police presence as well? Actually, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying about um, the origins of policing and like how they function, and it's like. Slave patrols were just vigilante groups. Like, they weren't organized. They didn't have any state power. And they were just white folks who got together that just felt like they needed to bring, like like I was talking about earlier, the com- black bodies were commodities, our commodities. So, like, bringing back these slave owners their property. And it's like, here we are, fast forward however many years, centuries, forward they still do that they but but instead of taking us back to our masters they throw us in jails they throw us in cells and prisons and at the end of the day like chris was saying like policing just doesn't work it's not a matter of it like being not functioning right it's functioning correctly like it's functioning exactly how it's supposed to function and like groups and like movements like black lives matter have been saying the same stuff for decades even though black lives matter is newer black folks have been saying this stuff for decades it's nothing new and we've been crying we've been fighting we've been organizing but for some reason the majority of the left 
kind of doesn't see it that way. And it's kind of nice to hear that whatever happens at the DSA kind of like got like left us to kind of like click and figure it out because it's like we're tired. Just as a black leftist, uh, we're tired of like having to say the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And what it takes is for you to find out your own people. <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of like supporting things that they should not be for folks to listen. Like, you know, but I think it's dope. And I wish they would have just got kicked out rather than asked to resign, but that's none of my business. Um, and But honestly, I feel like I have a friend, a comrade of mine, who always told me that, like, it is our job, like, specifically as anarchists, it's our job to radicalize every single space we go into. Like, we don't sit back and we don't, it's our job to just bring our best selves forward, bring our politics everywhere we go, and not really, like, sit on them. So, I will say, when it comes to leftist spaces, um, both institutions, like, like, nonprofits, and, like, also just more, like, you know, grassroots, especially in Rochester, um, they're really, really white, and I feel like everywhere we go, we have to fight against something, like against whether it's like how we're developing our a platform or like or how we're thinking about like you know race, like our developing our, like our racial analysis or our gender or class or whatever. Um, I feel like everywhere we go, there's gonna be a fight and an argument and. I have stories for days, pretty much, just for days. But I will say that the relationship that some of these social institutions, like these nonprofits, have with not only just RPD, but the union itself, is should be questioned and should be challenged. It should be called out and brought to the forefront. There's no reason why we're marching with them in, in, in Labor Day parades. There's no reason why we're sitting on labor boards with them. Um, we need to get rid of them. Every, every time they present themselves or show up somewhere, we need to make it very, 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 very clear that we're just not with it. Because I feel threatened when they're in my presence. Let's get it to a point where that stuff's reciprocated. Like, they shouldn't feel welcomed or loved or cared about ever like they're not sorry for the rant that's <laughs> kind of my thing i'm sorry R rant away this is uh <laughs> this is community radio that's what it's for. <laughs> just, just put the mic on jay and but uh, let them go that's my piece i just feel that um like i said as leftists the more far further left you go like is it depends on who you're talking to like we have socialists communists we have marxists leninists anarchists everybody like we're all here and we're all like we feel a, a specific thing but like how we act how we deal with it and how we act it out and like just what foundational like what the theory is like it plays out different in practice and i just feel like we should always just everywhere we go it's our responsibility to like t speak up speak up and act out there, there's a major yeah. disconnect between i think how most people perceive the police like through pop culture, you know, think about how many p cop shows are on the air in any given time right now. It's dozens, if not hundreds. And they always end with them solving the crime. Like that's sort of the arc that's always set up is like, here's the police. There's There's been a murder committed or there's been a robbery. And then they, they work the case. They study the evidence. It bears repeating. It bears saying for the first time on this podcast, police don't solve crimes. Cross the nation their clearance rates are pathetically low. And that's not a call for the police to do a better job. It's just an underscore that their job is not to solve crimes. Their job is to maintain uh, the social and racial hierarchies of the country. They understand that that's their job. And it's important for us to get that message across that they serve no legitimate purpose. They serve no socially useful purpose. They have no place in our labor movement, no place in our left spaces, and more importantly than that, they have no place in our society. I feel like alternatives to policing are possible. Like, the way we think about policing, like we were just talking about, the only reason why they exist is to uphold, like, racial and classes hierarchies. It's solely there to, like, keep white supremacy a thing like that that well that's that's untrue white supremacy existed before the police 
but it it, it kind of like makes it a thing now. The, the police are their most enthusiastic paid upholders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's this is like white supremacy evolved. Like you know, um, so, so I, I just wanted to clarify like getting rid of the police will not end white supremacy. It's a part of it, but we there's way more work that needs to be done than that. But we have to dismantle them first, and then after that, like. There's a world of possibilities that, like, us as community members, just people who are here, like, we got to have, we're going to have to come up with them. But I feel like we have to start thinking about it now because when it, when it does crumble, because either it's going to dismantle or it's going to die. Like, one of the two are going to happen. And we have to have these institutions in place already. Like, we can't wait until it's dismantled to be like, all right, guys, let's, like, figure out how we're going to deal with, like, conflict. <laughs> like, you know, we... We, we might not have time for that. Um, so you never know. Like post-rev, during the rev, who knows? Like anything can happen, and we should have the structures in place. So like actually I was talking a lot about this at um, the panel. We um, Community self-defense um, structures. Like we can take small – like and think about on a small scale, not all of Rochester. Every little piece of Rochester has their own different – issues and problems so we just take my hood like where I live or lived I don't live there anymore um the 19th ward we can just start there and we can figure out like why are people calling the police like you know what I mean like are they calling the police because there's like robberies happening like why are people calling the police and then from there try to figure out how we as a community can deal with these issues so folks don't have to pick up the phone and call the cops they can just pick up the phone and call one of us or call a friend or call a cousin or call a 711 cuz you know 211311 like whatever <laughs> like you know call a number and somebody can come out and help them out we can deal with um interpersonal violence we can deal with um, substance abuse. We could deal with mental health stuff, all that. My, a majority, of, I'm rambling. I'm kind of getting, I'm sorry. But a majority of my police contact comes from MHAs. And I, I, and I feel like the police being deployed for things like that, like if I'm in the middle of an episode and I'm like, mine, used, anyways, I'm not going to devolve my whole mental health history on the radio, but um just know if I'm wilding out and I need help, RPD is the last person I need to see because I'm triggered. Like it, it's a trigger. So instead, we can like have folks who we can do trainings where folks can be trained in mental health crises, or we can figure out who in our community already have the qualifications and would be willing to put their labor up. Like you know what I mean, and put the work up. All in all, community self defense structures like. We have the skills, we have the know-how, we just got to get organized. So, like, we just don't have to call them anymore. Like, and once we stop calling them, we'll, we'll, it'll be very, very clear that they're just showing up because they want to dominate and control. It wouldn't because there's, there's not a need. We don't need you anymore. The, the, mere, the mere presence of an armed figure makes any situation more volatile. Like, the, the very presence of police uh, at any situation makes it more dangerous and potentially more deadly and you know, I think you're right in underscoring that point. You know, particularly in in cases of mental health crises, these aren't they're not trained in that, nor should they be. You know, there are more appropriate institutions, let's say, certainly ones we should create as a community to serve that purpose or to serve purpose of personal and public safety like that. And people who identify with their weapons, the Locust Club, it's their tool. The gun, it's their tool. These are artisans, but their craft is violence. It's like I've gotten dragged out my house during the MHA by an RPD officer. That didn't help. <laughs> it made it worse. Like you said, they're not trained. They just react. They're the most reacting, reactionary bunch of people I've ever encountered in my life. <laughs> they just, they don't think much about it. And it's not safe. Like people will die. And, not, and if we're not dying, we're hella traumatized. And it just adds on to the, the issues we already have. You know, it's like, how are you coming to help me when my mental illnesses are flaring up or I'm having uh, whatever and then cause me more trauma? If anything, you're making it worse. We won't heal. We just can't heal that way. Yeah, that's not. And I feel like all like our options are all our alternatives should definitely center healing because like we go through constant trauma living under these institutions. And then living under like a white supremacist reality, it sucks. 
And I, I would say that there are um, like some inklings of hope um, in small institutions that are being built that are alternatives to policing. The problem is that they're not funded like the police are. Um, so like if you can think of programs that follow um, it's something called the ceasefire model, which are anti-gun violence programs um, that work by not deploying police officers, but people trained in de-escalation to conflicts or um, situations that could flare up into a conflict um, and lead to gun violence. These programs deploy people, um, outreach workers, to de-escalate these situations, and they don't come armed. They're not law enforcement. They don't work with police. And they have a track record of actually lowering um, gun violence in cities. Um, In Chicago and Baltimore, there were programs um, that follow the ceasefire model um, and have had success. But if you look at their budgets, they're small and they're constantly um, threatened with being cut. So, you know, we kind of have police, we, we almost make them the only option because we don't invest in alternatives. And even just thinking about how police money could go towards poverty um, reduction programs and mental health um, programs, education, housing, you know, everyone can kind of see how poverty leads to crime and um, how that is a huge issue. But, you know, when you invest in policing over institutions that could help with these, um, then you're just kind of creating a cycle um, that's not helping anything but making it worse. Um, So I think ending, you know, thinking of an alternative policing could just mean, you know, taking the money that's invested in policing and investing it in uh, social welfare. It's almost like society is dependent on the oppression of people. Like, it's almost as if our society needs us to suffer in order to to survive. And that's what, I guess, really is disheartening because it's like, in reality, we know these things, but who's going to do it? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, they're not going to take the money from the cops. If they take the money from the cops and put it into the people, the cops would be, abs- they wouldn't be needed. And then if the cops aren't needed, the sh- stuff won't go around. Things won't be natural. Everyone's going to be threatened. Their way of survival is going to be threatened. The brain's going to go into overdrive, and then everyone's going to wall out. Like, it's crazy. Not literally, but it's almost like they need us to suffer in order for everyone else on the top to live lovely and be free. I think that's why it behooves us to uh, do our best to disestablish the police, bust police unions. Uh, It's okay. They're not one of us. On that note, uh, Chris, I believe you had some uh, events you wanted to call our attention Um, to. So in this theme, um, there are going to be some events, one hosted by Enough is Enough and Rochester DSA um, called Beyond Reform, Prison and Police Abolition with Nabil Hussain and Alex Vitale. Um, That's going to be April 18th, um, 7 to 9 p.m. And that's going to be a panel discussion about prison and police abolition and thinking about alternatives to the uh, prison industrial complex. And we also have, oh, that's going to be at um, 497 State Street at the Center for Disability Rights. And there's another one. um, I was talking about the ceasefire um, program, and we have um, a program called Save Our Youth, which follows that ceasefire model. And we're going to, Enough is Enough is going to be having an event with them on March 28th. 6 to 8 p.m. talking about their program and how um, they de-escalate violent situations and are an alternative to law enforcement. All right, great. Thanks, Chris. I'm Rich. Today I've been joined by Chris and Jay. Thanks for being here, guys. No, thank you for having me. This has been uh, (laughs) Punching Out. Until next time on WAYO 104.3 FM. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. 
Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.